I think this is one of the challenges that all history museums face, regardless of the type, is that folks think about us as something in the past. I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna learn it, it's gonna be one and done and boom, I'll pass the test or tell my mama went or however that, that went. But the idea that all of these stories that any history museum is telling still being written, still has, has implications, I think is critical. Um, and so I think we're at a high moment of understanding when it comes to the African-American story uh, and, and what, is, what is happening there. And so I think that is actually what has me most excited. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going fantastically, Josh. How are you? Um, also fantastic, but with not as many A's, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> you used them all up. Matt, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? I had maybe the same thing I had the last time you asked me. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, I had an English muffin with avocado and uh, a poached egg on top. Nice. The last time I asked you, you had made banana pancakes. <laughs> so it wasn't the same thing. No, but close. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what culture eats for breakfast? Everything. Everything. Yes. Everything for breakfast. It eats, it eats budget. It eats strategy. Uh, culture eats everything for breakfast. And, uh, and we get to hear that from Doc T, Dr. Tanya Matthews, in today's interview, amongst a wide variety of amazing insights and subjects that we're going to learn from her. Uh, Dr. Tanya Matthews is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the International African American Museum under construction in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, we get to hear uh, everything that has gone into the museum, everything with her career and her background and her area of influence. And this is just such an insightful, informative, uh, inspirational interview. And what I love about talking to Doc T is not only how she encapsulates what the institution is doing, but also how she personally has been navigating, you know, different institutions and different experiences. And, and as she calls it, you know, building the plane while she's flying um, and sort of that sort of experience. And I just love hearing her perspective on all that. So I am super excited to get this interview out there for everybody to hear. Well, let's get to it. Dr. Matthews, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We are really excited to chat with you today. How are you? I am well, Josh. How are you? Doing fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so let's jump into this. Uh, can you give us a, a quick introduction? Tell us a little bit about yourself as well as maybe a quick introduction to the International African American Museum. 
Sure. I guess, of course, for, for myself, I am the epitome of learning as you go, that every experience feeds into the next one. Very non-linear, I think, uh, career path. Um, trained as an engineer, a biomedical and electrical engineer. I found my way into museums, starting out at a science center, actually the Maryland Science Center in my home state of Maryland, though my mother says to remind folks I was born in Washington, D.C., so I'm a true Washingtonian. Uh, and then from there, I became, you know, a museum professional, uh, fell in love with the, the classroom uh, that is known as a museum in a very different kind of way, uh, found my way to Detroit, and then ultimately where I am now at the International African American Museum in Charleston, which is a history museum. Uh, so that is just sort of a really interesting arc and a journey. But I think the through line is education around relatively uncomfortable subjects, you know, uh, and the International African American Museum is being built as we speak in Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Doc T, I am so fascinated to, to learn so much more about you and the and the museum. Uh, but one thing that is in your LinkedIn profile, you, you call yourself an education agitator. So I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think part of that comes from the, uh, the intersection of engineering and education, right? My staff used to tease me, if you want to make Doc T happy, just give her a problem. Just, just bring a problem to her and she lights up and, and just gets into the, the solving. And so I really am that cliche of thinking about problems as opportunities. And I think with education, um, there's a lot of um, well-intentioned and probably a well-deserved hand-wringing around our educational systems, our student performances, and I'm often in those spaces and those classrooms. And what I like to do is, is kind of poke a little bit, um, sometimes poke at the solutions, sometimes poke at the way we answer the questions, sometimes poke at our goals. So one of the things that got me into museums was the idea that we would ever set something like as 89% graduation rates as our goal right? Um, that where we were, that we would set the goal there. And I would ask the question, well, what about the other 11%? Are you sure that's how we want to, to even talk about setting those goals? And sometimes it's full left of center. What if public education is one giant systems engineering conundrum? And maybe we should have some folks who have that kind of training to come in and sit uh, in, these, in these conversations. Um, but I also think a big part of that is uh, a scientist training in trial and error as an expected natural and necessary part of the process. And I think all of those kinds of things combined give me um, a slight slightly different voice when I'm in rooms around education. It's very interesting, very, very fascinating. I, so you've been in Charleston for coming up on a year this yes. April. So at the time mm -hmm. of this recording, about 11 months or so. Uh, can you give us just a, a quick snapshot of what the last 11 months have looked like in terms of uh, just areas of focus to get this museum up and running that will uh, hopefully be open within the next nine months as of this recording? Yeah. So I would say uh, personally and professionally, it's been an incredible journey and an incredible place uh, to, to be. I do like opportunities that give me a chance to return to the learning curve uh, and leading this institution because of our subject matter, because of our audiences in that space. So a couple of things. One, the museum is being built at a historic site, a sacred location, some would say. We're being construction 
constructed on the site of Gadsden's Wharf, one of our nation's most prolific slave trading ports. Uh, and rather than a park or a monument, this community chose museum uh, to, to build a museum in this space. And so that right there uh, is an incredible set of marching orders. Uh, the second thing is that Charleston is a high tourism community. Right. And so any museum in, in our region or cultural attraction is thinking that, you know, our engagement with with tourists and temporary visitors will be anywhere from 60 to 80 percent, depending on the type of institution you are. So so thinking about um, how we're going to balance uh, those who may only meet us once um, while still being able to be anchored uh, at the home team uh, in in the community. Um, because part of even some of our galleries, what actually differentiates us from other um, African-American history museums in the country will be things like our ability to pull together the Gullah Geechee Gallery, which is a living history gallery because the Gullah Geechee peoples are an African-American community that has maintained incredibly close uh, cultural and language ties, linguistic ties um, to their heritage through um, the West Coast of Africa and our um, African diasporic cousins. Uh, down in some of the Caribbean islands. So all of that is, is weaving together, I think, in terms of the mission and programming marching orders. And then there is building a 100,000 square foot facility, all told. We've got about 45,000 square feet interior space and about 60,000 square feet in our exterior garden space. Uh, so this is also a wonderful new adventure um, to be in a community that is essentially 12 months Right, um, I, coming out of Detroit recently, I chuckle at what we call winter uh, down here <laughs> in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so thinking about this, this year round of programming space, having an external space, um, and we are a fully accessible um, and ungated uh, institution that sits right on the edge of the water. So we know that while some of our visitors will come intentionally, some will discover us while simply walking around along the piers and sort of those kinds of things, just in our outside space, as well as our interior space, which has um, nine core galleries plus uh, traveling uh, special exhibitions gallery plus the Center for Family History. And that is actually gonna be a world-class genealogy center uh, with a specialty in African-American genealogy. So there's been a lot. There's been a lot to, to, to wrap my mind around, to wrap our arms around uh, as, as a team. Uh, so we, we've had a few folks uh, on, on the ship for, for a few years now, um, but we're also getting into the space where we are going to be building uh, the core team that will run and operate the museum. And so in addition to physically building the building and also um, logistically building out the program, we're also building the culture uh, that we want to be and that we need to be in order to make this all work together. So can you dive a little deeper into what you want that culture to be? Because so many people throw around the word culture and they may not even know what it means or what it looks like in yeah. their organization. So you get to build yours. So what does that look like to you? You know, one, I think it, it, they, people say this in many ways, but, you know, culture eats everything for breakfast. Culture eats budget for breakfast. Culture eats design for breakfast. Just And so you have to really be um, aware of that. And culture are, are ingrained uh, intuitive norms, ways of interacting, ways of engaging, ways of, of speaking, right? So you may walk into an environment and realize, oh, okay, everyone here automatically goes in for a hug or automatically goes in for a handshake when you're doing greetings. That's actually a cultural 
uh, kind of thing. Um, you may come up to a table and realize, oh, everyone's standing around at the table. Oh, the last person's here. Now we're sitting down. So you'll have some of those elements and, and norms. And so while I've used very easy to understand examples, this also happens in business, right? This also happens in, in organizations. And so thinking through that, um, I think is really important. And for us, you know, we are um, a museum, an organization, a site that is on some very, shall I say, uh, conversational kind of history, right? We're, we're dealing with uncomfortable subjects on purpose, right? This is not sort of an accidental uh, adventure. And so thinking about how you actually have a culture that one helps us as a team uh, think through that uh, and, and work with that, right? And so we ourselves are going to be building a diverse culture, right? A diverse culture uh, that also prioritizes inclusion um, and accessibility. So when you have a diverse culture and you're talking about, say, some of the, the darker moments in African American history, you've got to understand that even among your staff, you're going to have different understandings, different knowledges, different viewpoints. And even when we level the playing field in terms of knowledge and understanding of the story, relationship to the story will never be identical among our team members. And that is actually a good thing. It is our strength, but it also threatens to be our Achilles heel every day. And so you need to think about a culture uh, that, that welcomes that, that nourishes that, that understands that, even while we are facing uh, the same marching orders uh, and the same end goals. And doing that then helps us think about the culture that we're welcoming visitors into, right? So our visitors are gonna be doing the same thing without the benefit of year long of retreats and half day workshops, right? So our visitors are coming in cold. Um, and we actually um, had a conversation very recently about um, our genealogy center, the Center for Family History. As folks are in those spaces and going further back and further back and discovering spaces in their history that are gonna be jarring for some because they conflict with the story they've been raised with or jarring for others because, well, this is gonna be a moment of perhaps horror and tragedy affirming uh, for others. And so how are we prepared, right? How, how are we prepared? Um, do we have a shrug your shoulders kind of culture? Do we have a let me walk away, give you some space kind of culture? Or do we have a, hey, you are not alone um, here. How would you like with, for me to engage with you at this particular moment? kind of kind of culture and thinking about uh, about how we build that into processes norms expectations um and we're building the plane while flying on that uh i think because um while i would argue that this museum would be needed and necessary at any period of time without question building this kind of museum post-2020 versus pre-2020 are two entirely different conversations because the American culture is in another moment of high evolution, as I like to call it. Uh, and so part of you know, building the plane while flying, hopefully we won't lose that sensitivity um, that we can grow and more easily um, as um, our community does as well. Can you share a little bit as well of how the content is being delivered? Uh, <laughs> we've used the word uncomfortable a couple of times. Yeah. So we're dealing with uncomfortable subjects on purpose, uh, which ties into what you said in, in your intro, that you like having conversations around relatively uncomfortable subjects. So curious as far as really establishing 
uh, the intentionality of mm. how the stories are being told, how the content is being delivered, and is it is it based off of I would say similar types of of institutions because this is also a a venue for tourism and for people to come and, and visit and and visit intentionally as well as those who who discover it uh, based on the location. Sure. I am curious as far as. Uh, you know, I've, I've visited uh, a number of uh, Holocaust memorial museums, the 9-11 museums. Is it, is it in, uh, in any way benchmarked or somewhat inspired by the way they tell those stories? Or is it also, you know, from the ground up as well? I think you're making a really good point that um, even inside history museums, we are in a community of other kinds of museums, like sites of conscience uh, museums, a first voice museums that have specific ethnic or cultural viewpoints. So we're definitely in that community. Those are our sister and brother and cousin uh, type of museums. And I think that there's a lot of learning that we can do in that. Um, and for, for yourself and for any of our listeners and viewers who have been to multiple types of organizations, you'll see there's a variety of ways uh, museums choose to get into that story. So even at African-American museums that are all ostensibly telling, say, this particular segment, we may have different styles. Uh, and so we've learned from that um, and we're building upon that. And I think one of the things that I want the International African-American Museum to be able to deliver is the complexity. It's not complicated, it's complex. That's just the poet in me playing with words. And so, so part of it is around this, it's a story simultaneously anchored in trauma and joy. Not trauma in the first part of the story and joy in the last part of the story. It's all weaving together constantly. And I think one of the things um, that really is the challenge, like how does it become you know, controversial or how does it become uncomfortable? It's because our goal is to tell the whole story. Arguably, there is a part of the African-American journey that everyone wants to hear, right? It's not the same part, but different people will want to hear different parts of the story. I really want to hear about the, the tragedy and the trauma of slavery. I really want to hear about the African-American commitment to fighting in military conflicts. I really want to hear about famous Black scientists. I really want to hear about famous Black artists. So along the story, um, there are all these parts that many of us really like and really resonate with and are very comfortable with and wanna hear. But our challenge and our goal of telling the whole story is that while you will get some of exactly what you're asking for, it's some of exactly what you're looking for, our commitment is to put it in the full context, right? I mean, there may be some parts of the story you would prefer to avoid or not get or trying to figure out why do I have to learn A in order to understand C. And so I think putting that of uh, those stories in context um, is, is where is where we are and, and some of those those conversations. Um, and I think we're also talking about identity, right? And so we we clearly um, understand the connection to African American identity. Um, some of that that uh, story has been authentically told. Some of it has not been. Some of it has been hidden. And so clearly we are centered in telling the African-American story as a way of, of restoration, reconciliation, and acknowledgement of authentic African-American identity. But we must also understand that we are part of a larger story and that as we reclaim or tell stories of African-American identity, this does indeed often impact 
other communities, other individual sense of their own identity as well. And so thinking about how we're, how we're, how we're moving in that space, thinking about how we can center our own voice um, and allow others to, to grapple with how the perhaps new centering of, of this voice uh, impacts the way we, we think about ourselves. Um, and so it's, it's a very interesting story that other museums and other sites that you've mentioned, such as those that talk about the Holocaust, or perhaps those that talk about Japanese internment camps, or those that talk about Latinx, Latino, LGBTQ, I could go on and on and on about all these other kinds of stories. I think there are lots of lessons um, that we can all learn from each other. But I will say, um, Arguably and somewhat unapologetically, the African-American story represents a bit of ground zero um, when we're talking about American history. Um, and so that we have always been on the front line of this grappling with who gets to tell the story and how uh, and the ramifications and implications of that. I would think one of the other challenges of that, and maybe this is a question for all museums, is the story is still being written. Right. We're still living it. And yeah. so obviously a lot of things have happened in the past that you can refer to. But how do you then balance how all those things in the past have happened and how that might be influencing and impacting the story today, tomorrow and into the future? Yeah, uh, well, that is the best question ever, Matt, because then <laughs> you are my like ideal museum goer, because you said it's still being written. I think this is one of the challenges that all history museums face, regardless of the type, is that folks think about us as something in the past. I'm going to go there, I'm going to learn it, it's going to be one and done, and boom, I'll pass the test or tell my mama went or however that, that went. But the idea that all of these stories that any history museum is telling still being written, still has, has implications, I think is critical. Um, and so I think we're at a high moment of understanding when it comes to the African-American story uh, and, and what, is, what is happening there. And so I think that is actually what has me most excited, right? That, that has me most excited. If folks can come in and say, oh, is that why we do such and such? Oh, is that how that came about? That for me is a big part of our success. When folks can take something that's coming out of the 14th century, 17th century, 1940, whatever, and say, oh, th that explains a lot, uh, is, is part of, I think, what we're going for. Um, and also um, a sense of change, right? And a loss or a lack of sense of inevitability. I think one of the things that a museum like this can, can do is, is talk about how stories in history have just blown expectations. This was not the plan, that was not the direction, and all of a sudden we went left. A few years later, we went right. We have still not gotten back to the center. And so I'm excited about that too. I think in this particular moment in time, folks are kind of settling into the, well, I, I, I guess this is just where we're gonna be. You know, We're just gonna keep fighting these battles over and over and over again. And I'm hoping that an experience at a museum like ours will get people out of that space. Um, and get people to think about um, all of the times we've had to sort of dig ourselves out of the quote unquote obvious. Um, and perhaps, you know, um, holy grail kind of thing is, you know, those aha moments, perhaps folks can understand why, is that why 
that particular conversation went that way. Mm-hmm. Is that why that particular person seemed to come in so hot, you know, in, in that particular conversation, as well as curiosity? I wish I had known that is the second favorite thing I like to hear in museums. Like, oh, wow. I wish I had known that. Third, of course, is, wow, I've got to I've got to get a book. I'm going to go to the museum shop. See if they have a book on this. So, of course, the, that is the, the other thing that we like to, to hear um, because you can't fit all of anyone's history, particularly African-Americans, in a single museum. And so, you know, we've had to make some choices uh, in curating. And I hope folks figure that out and, and understand, whew, there's just so much more to learn. And this was even better than I thought it would be. And so I'm, I'm up for learning more. Well, I think this ties in nicely with the museum's mission statement, which is the museum strives to foster empathy and understanding, empowering visitors with the knowledge of the past. The journey will challenge, illuminate, and inspire, and ultimately will move people to action. I, so reading that for our audience as well to, to familiarize. <laughs> yeah. Two-part question from that really is, what's the desired action and mm-hmm. how do you move people to the desired action? Sure. So our, um, you know, our, as a museum that's grown, we've got a whole bunch of like ways of describing kind of who we are and what we do. So part of our sort of driving direction is, you know, to tell the untold stories of the African-American journey at one of our nation's most sacred sites. And then it rolls into the statement that you were talking about, inspiring people to, to action. Um, so one of the things that we think about is, is that phrase around untold. And we know that we're playing with language there. Right. So by untold, we may mean mistold, hidden, only whispered, changed, uh, modified. And so that in and of itself is one of the easiest and simplest calls to action. Right. Which is to tell the story. Come in, learn your favorite story, share the story. Right. Uh, You know, tell about something that you that you've known and that you understood, because I think part of what we fundamentally believe is that the more people that know the story, the, the better conversations we can have. And that actually changes the outcome. Knowing the truth, um, knowing a fullness of a story actually changes the outcome. So good news for, you know, for the introverts, the quiet folks. Um, baseline is just actually sharing uh, and telling the story. I think the second part of that is um, also believing that a little bit more understanding of the context that we're working in should probably shape our actions. Right. Um, what, what's that phrase? Um, doing what you've always done and expecting to have a different outcome is the epitome <laughs> of, of that's not going to happen. Uh, and so and so so I do believe that if, if we understand a bit more about the context uh, that, that we're working in. Uh, and, and what's actually happening, that that will motivate folks to, to action. I would say over the last couple of years, many of us have sat in rooms and a conversation what should we do? What can we do? I just learned this. I just figured this out. I want to help. I want to do different. I want to change. Um, a question I get often now is, how can we be an ally? And I can't wait to go to the museum because you're going to teach me how to be an ally, right? I'm like, oh, okay, sure. I'm going to add it, add it to the list, right? And I think though that is the power of context. That is actually the power of, 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 uh, of, of learning some of these things. And so what I like to encourage folks to do and what I hope that the breadth of our institution can encourage folks to do is to act within their own context, 
right? Um, so for example, I work with uh, an organization called The Lonely Entrepreneur uh, and coming out of the 2020, they were trying to, well, what can we do? And their play was to create the Black Entrepreneur Initiative, right? This is what they do. They help entrepreneurs, they help small businesses. Okay, so our lane is money and empowerment of small businesses. That's where we're going to sit. Um, we're working with the Charleston County Public Library locally, right? And we have worked with them to add a storyline. They've got a great dial a story program and they work with us to add a Gullah Geechee storyline. Why? That's what they do. They do books, they do storytelling. And so when we say call to action, um, it doesn't necessarily mean go out and march. Although, hey, if marching is your thing and you've got a t-shirt from every major movement in the last decade or so, yes, get on out there. But it also means that if you're in the financial sector, if you're in banking, if you're in business, what can you do in that space? If you were in the education sector, how, how are you thinking about doing that? If you are simply the neighbor that is known for hosting the best barbecue or gathering every year, what also are you thinking about in that space? And so I think that when we think call to action, we think big, giant movement events, and those are wonderful and those are necessary. Uh, and clearly I have the kind of personality that may lean into that a time or two, but I think what's really important is for folks to figure out how to empower themselves in their own spaces, uh, in, in, in their own sphere and, and what they can do. And in that, the museum does a lot more listening. Uh, then we actually do telling and talking. So I'm really looking forward to getting those stories from our visitors and our members in terms of perhaps how we inspired or, or how they shared something that they learned with, with someone else. I am so glad you brought up listening because I got to see your, your TED talk um, and was fascinated by it. And I thought, you know, you, you did a, a wonderful job, but you talked about listening and specifically multimodal sense perception. And I thought that was so fascinating, probably going back to your engineering days. Um, but when we think about these uncomfortable topics, it can be easy for us to just shut down and to, mm -hmm. to not want to think about it. So how do we tell the story to people that may need to hear it, but are maybe in that mode of, of wanting yeah. to shut down? So I think that's a really good question. Um, and while I could answer perhaps from an institutional perspective, and I will probably get into the concept of free choice learning, which is like choose your own adventure, right? You can go to whichever gallery you feel most comfortable in and, and sort of start. I think I'll also really answer that question, I think from a personal perspective. Um, and one of the things that I found myself doing even before I got into this space is working on a practice of radical empathy. Okay, radical empathy, not necessarily sympathy, which, you know, we sometimes have to say excuse some things, but radical empathy. And, and it's a way of almost exuding welcome and a willingness to, to personalize and be just a touch vulnerable in the story um, that you're telling. One of the greatest compliments I've ever gotten is, I didn't agree with a word that you said, but now I actually understand how someone like you could think that way. Boom, success. Okay, here, here, here we go, right? Didn't shut down, didn't listen, didn't feel attacked because we were about to come at something from two different ways. Um, and I think that um, active listening 
also happens while you're talking. So when I'm giving, say, we, we do some hard hat behind the scenes tours now, even as I'm talking, I'm, I'm actively watching and, and listening for, for body language and, and for reactions. Everything from people shutting down to people you know feeling down to being up to being lifted, all of that, and it actually impacts the way that I'm telling the story, not the what, not, not the facts, not, not the truth, not the, not the context, um, but it does, it does help me understand where to push my energy forward, where to push my energy back, when to make eye contact and do a little nod. Mm -hmm. I see, I see you over there, sort of those kinds of things. And so I think that, that, that there's listening even while we're talking. Um, and then the act, we, we talk about this a lot, of active listening. It's the question behind the question, behind the question that you are afraid to ask anyway, and you've really worked up to even get to half the question. Um, and so that, that body language that lets folks know that you're listening. Because what I find is that nine times out of 10, uncomfortable conversations erupt or go left because people feel they aren't being heard. It's, it's, it's not, we, we tend to simplify that into people feel they're not being agreed with, but I think fundamentally it's that people feel they are not being heard and that's the way they're interpreting. And I found a lot of success, um, particularly when I'm in a conversation with someone that we disagree, that I disagree with, you know, we, we know we're going to be coming at this from different perspectives. Um, if we can show authentic listening um, and, and confirm for the person that they are actually being heard, um, the, the conversations tend to go well, which doesn't mean that we end up in agreement. It just means that the conversation goes well. And I think that plays out because if you don't think you're being heard, you tend to speak louder. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. You, you tend to speak louder. You tend to speak more, uh, more forcefully, um, and you tend to also speak in a way that doesn't allow other people to respond. Right. Um, and I think this is one of the um, the challenges of, say, electronic media, uh, and in terms of that, which it does allow you to speak uninterrupted, uh, so, sort of in 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 those spaces. Um, uh, and, and in those ways. And, you know, it, 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 it is what it is because, you know, in a big room, you know, everyone wants to be heard. So I think one of the things that we're grappling with as an institution um, that is hoping for robust attendance and then the time ticketing phenomena and all that kind of stuff is a lot of these conversations happen um, very well in smaller groups. Right. And in small environments, one on one, two on two, small group conversations. And so when you're talking about hundreds, thousands going through a space, how do we how do we foster meaningful conversation? Uh, and I think one of the things we're thinking about is that perhaps the meaningful conversation that we're fostering happens once folks leave not necessarily while they're there. So while we're in that classic space of museum small groups and workshops and sort of these kinds of things, we're also trying to figure out how we um, take a little agency inside of the conversations that happen after folks listen, when folks can be in, in smaller and smaller groups, arguably much harder to measure. But you know, like I said, part of me is still an engineer. We'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and that I think is is really interesting and very applicable to to a, a wide range of museums in terms of are you delivering content so people are memorizing dates and facts and people and everything like that, or are you delivering content in a way that you know it, if I'm walking out of the museum and I'm pulling out my phone because I want to Google everything that I've now you know got mm-hmm. in my head because I I want to I want to learn more about it and I want to. Uh, um, have those conversations with uh, with those around me. Um, switching gears just a sure. little bit, we were talking a little bit before uh, before we started recording about uh, trends in cultural and heritage tourism, and so would love to know uh, just what you see in terms of that, as well as IAM's significance in where cultural and heritage tourism is moving towards. Yeah, so I think it's a wonderful and interesting phenomenon, uh, quintessentially American. Uh, and, and so this is actually really good. And the idea is that people are specifically going uh, to learn something, right? <coughs> Excuse me. Specifically going to particular sites or particular places. And one of the things that has now sort of risen is I'm African-American cultural tourism, uh, not just for... <clears throat> African-Americans, but also for anyone who wants to learn about these kinds of things. So one, it's a great advantage for us because folks are coming into a space and expecting uh, to learn, right? But often they're also coming into a space and they already know a little something. That's how they knew how to to find you. And so one, it's it's a great audience, um, I think, to, to have. Um, But one, I also think it's a space where we really want to think about radical inclusion and accessibility, right? Because learning about culture and learning about heritage is really something that we should all have interesting access to. And we also need to be very careful um, in that space because some of that can sometimes be extractive, right? We don't want to reduce a culture to a food type. Right, we don't want to um, reduce a culture to a particular moment uh, in history, and I think it's something that uh, this community, uh, Charleston, uh, the Low Country, and then African Americans as a whole, may be quite sensitive to, um, because sometimes when you do that reduction, that's how we get into also some stereotypes around those things, and so, so part of that is um, a renewed emphasis on the what and the why. Right, of course, if you're coming down to the low country and you're learning about Gullah Geechee uh, peoples, you, you wanna taste some Gullah cuisine, all right? You wanna know what this, what this, this yellow gold, this, this rice is all about. You wanna understand sort of the spices and those kinds of things, and that makes sense. And it's also really important to the economy, right? It's also really important to, to supporting uh, this, this cultural tourism. And so what that means is we want to think about talking about the why and the what's, right? Why actually is the spice and flavor profile in the Carolinas so similar to some of that in West Africa, so similar to some of that in Barbados? Like, oh, wait a minute. So we can sort of talk about these kinds of things. We can also talk about how it's a little different um, based on on what folks had to, to work with here and what we kept and what was changed. And so I think it's a great boon to the industry that folks have this renewed interest in um, thinking very specifically about the cultural tourism sites that they, they want to go to. Uh, and I think along with that, you've got some responsibility of say big anchor institutions like the International African American Museum to point folks to other smaller 
uh, sites that sort of align to what we're teaching. So folks can go see a monument or a smaller museum um, that's also in our community, um, as well as thinking about how to make sure that these moments are um, still chunkable to understand and take in, but still have enough of their context to not become uh, a meme, for lack of a better analogy. Yeah. Doc T, I love how you talked a minute ago about taking that conversation past the experience of being at the museum. And I know Josh and I are going to talk about this interview for a long time, and I hope our listeners do too. Um, but I'm curious if you have any sort of thoughts or words of wisdom or pieces of advice for people who maybe want to be an ally or want to learn more um, and be more inclusive, but they just don't know how. Yeah, so that is a, a very big and difficult question. And so I would say two things, right? One, we, we already talked about, you know, honestly, listening is key, right? But that, that full 360 listening, even listening while you're talking, right? I think many of us are into the active listening space or plenty of books. So, so listening with intentionality, listening with the vulnerability that, that means you you are allowed to show the other person you're actually listening and engaged and then listening while talking, right? Listening to see how your, your words and your work is received so that you can call the question, oh, I just saw something there. What did I just say? Right, so sort of those, those kinds of things. So one, this, this thing about listening, it, it just has legs. It is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, the, the second part of that that I would say is that <clears throat> If you are in the space of, of learning, acknowledge the teacher. I think this is perhaps one of the biggest challenges to allyships, which is that by definition, you're going into a space where um, you may be more used to being the one that's leading, more used to being the one that has the microphone, that, that has the story, that, that has the answers. And actually being a student is a skill set in and of itself. Um, and, and the ability to sort of to back up um, and actually be led um, is I, I find it very, very difficult for, for a lot of folks. Um, and just, just acknowledge, you know, different communities, particularly within the American context, have been socialized into different roles. If you're trying to step out of the role that you have been socialized into, give yourself some grace, but tag it with a little bit of accountability and try to sit back um, and, and, and be led and listen. Um, and you're going to have to diversify your friend group, not your friend group, your friend, friend group. Okay. Like, like the folks that, that, you know, you might tell little secrets to that are, that are vulnerable to, this is in addition to your colleague circle and your coworkers circle and your fangirl, fanboy circle. Um, but at the end of the day, our personal experiences, and it's not just the, the interactions, it's the ability to, to be with and around a person enough to see how they navigate the world, right? Um, I've, I've had conversations, um, I know with friends and colleagues that talk about the moment that they got it. And several of those moments are the moment that they were in, say, a vehicle, um, with an African-American American male when they were passing anywhere near, say, a police car, right? That the tension and the energy just kind of, kind of changed. And some have also had the unfortunate experience of actually having to engage um, in, in some of those interactions. And it was just a whole nother world, even beyond the conversation of just, of just telling. 
uh, and being in that space. And so actually having real friends uh, in that group and watching how they have to navigate uh, in the world. And you're not there as a spectator or an onlooker. You're there as an actual participant, as a friend. There's there's a lot of learning uh, and understanding and knowledge in that. Um, and it and it goes it goes in all directions. Uh, I think I think it goes in in, in many, many uh, directions for all of us. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, really, uh, really interesting. Very, very informative. Uh, so, Dr. T, we're starting to run a little low on time here, but I, I do have another yes. question for you here. Please. And this goes back to uh, just the research that we're doing to prepare. Learned that uh, initially you were considering becoming a doctor. <laughs> And the reason why is because you wanted to save the world and help people. So yes. I would love to connect that with, mm -hmm. uh, with what you're doing today. Can you share how, sure. uh, how that mission connects with, uh, with your role right now? Sure. In retrospect, it all makes sense, right? So you start out as a kid, you want to save the world. I've always wanted to save the world. You can, you can find folks who will say that. And I said, okay, doctors, doctors heal people. That, that's about saving the world, right? Then I discovered I didn't like sick people. So I needed a plan B and my plan B was, ooh, biomedical engineering. Literally made up the word at the time. It happened to be a real word, but made up the word. I know I will build tools for people who will be doctors. And wow, that's like a plus one because now I'm not just helping like one patient. I'm helping a doctor that helps all these patients. So now I've got this, this progression and then going. And then I got into the space hey, what if I teach people how to build the tools that they're building it sort of for, for the doctors? And so then it got bigger and bigger. Then as I got into um, sort of like museums, it's like, whoa, I can even teach people who don't have the degree about how they could use all this sciencey and techie things. And so what, it, what has happened is that my understanding of quote unquote, save the world and my, my ability to do it has, has gained the understanding of there's only so much you can do by yourself. For all the big stuff, you need an army, right? And you need to understand how you impact. Um, and I think education is a big, big way and a big part of that. And so as I got into that education space, I was like, I will create an army of engineers and, and doctors and people who just use science and they're not even engineers and doctors. And then of course, as we're coming into this space and I'm coming into my own as an African-American female in leadership and stepping into these interesting places, I get into what I would argue are some of the most crucial conversations to saving the world that we have, which is how human beings will get along, how we move beyond our, our biases and racisms and institutionalized thises and thats. And I think that's the space um, that I am in in now. And of, of course, I no longer quite speak with the arrogance of a nine-year-old talking about I'm going to save the world. But I do recognize that the work that I do, um, if, we, if we do it well, and now it's the, the, the we with a capital uh, W, that this has impact. And so I, I sometimes shorthand it into, you know, I, um, the two scariest words uh, in the English language are racism and algebra. And I happen to do both. Wow. Well, that makes you someone qualified to save the world then, I think. <laughs> 
so I hope you will consider Josh and I part of your army to help you um, to save the world. We are we are um, just so uh, excited that we got to talk to you today. So fascinating, all the different things that we got to chat about. Doc T, if people wanted to learn more about IAAM or get in touch with you, where would you send them? Sure. I would send them, of course, to our website, um, which is iaamuseum.org. And you can uh, use that moniker to find us on Instagram uh, and Twitter and the other uh, social media feeds that we have. Uh, and you can get in touch with me at CEO at iaamuseum.org. And I'm also on uh, Twitter as DocTJedi1619. That's an entirely different podcast on that. <laughs> explaining all of that, but that's what happens when you allow a poet and an engineer to make up a Twitter handle. So that's where we There you go. go. <laughs> well, it looks like we're going to need to schedule part two sometime in the near future. But, uh, but in the meantime, Doc T, thank you so much. Uh, just very grateful that we had the opportunity to speak with you today. Best of luck with the continued uh, planning and pre-opening and building out the remaining of the team and the culture. And uh, we cannot wait for the museum to open and to visit. And in the meantime, just remember, we are all attraction pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com. <laughs>